Okay, make sure your seatbelts are securely fastened and open to the book of Job, please. I have a couple of loose ends to tie up from last time, and then we'll jump into uh, the section uh, that we find ourselves in today in Job chapter 42. You can go ahead and turn back uh, to the book of Job, to Job uh, 41, 42, somewhere in that area. Uh, man, we could have done a whole series on the creatures that we talked about last time. Um, if, you've, if any of you have read uh, the creation literature, if any of you have been to any of the creation museums, if you're into ICR, or Ken Ham's ministry, Answers in Genesis, any of those things, you know that uh, creationists often talk about the two creatures uh, that we uh, spoke of last time. Uh, I, I wanted to just bring a couple of thoughts back to, to tie those things together since we sort of ran out of time. But um, in terms of these two final examples... I did want you to see that these creatures have features which suggest that they may have been dinosaurs or dinosaur-like creatures. I, I think I said that last time, but um, that, that's, where, that's where creationists really appreciate the examples here. Um, as you know, um, I was thinking about this, doing all this extra, these extra trips with my mom when she was in town. We were going to museums and whatnot. And, you know, dinosaurs, um, dinosaurs are one of those things that... Um, just generate a ton of interest. There's a whole line of toys out there dedicated to dinosaurs. There's tons of literature. Um, it's very, very popular in the culture in terms of children. And, um, and part, of the, part of the popularity is that when you think about it, scientists only know about that much about what dinosaurs really are, which gives you, you know, great freedom to make it whatever you want it to be. And that's part of the explanation, whether it's Jurassic Park or whether it's some a TV show or, or some toy line. Um, but the, the interesting thing is that at least as far as these verses are concerned, the um, Bible talks about creatures like that. And it uh, doesn't tell us a whole lot, but it does tell us that these two creatures seem at least in part to share some features which are best explained in thinking about dinosaurs or creatures that were somewhat like dinosaurs. The other thing that I didn't say last time and was one of the things I wanted to underscore today was that though now probably extinct, I mean, the, the creatures that we read about in Job, uh, the last couple of chapters of Job there, as far as we know, we don't see any creatures that fit those descriptions today. So, so now they're probably extinct. They were both on the earth in Job's day. Uh, and again, that, that's a problem for a scientist who doesn't believe in creation. It's, pro, it's a problematic for uh, even um, some Christian scientists that don't hold to a literal understanding of Genesis. But, but it's not a problem for Bible-believing Christians uh, that affirm uh, a young earth and affirm a literal understanding of Genesis. It's not surprising that the Bible would say that people and dinosaurs were on the earth at the same time. Um, so that's, that's something, again, that uh, Scripture appears to support. Uh, unless, unless dinosaurs came into existence uh, early on day six of creation and were extinct before the afternoon when God created man and woman, they probably were on the earth together. Okay? And um, I didn't have a chance to do this, and we're not going to digress because we need to move on here. But um, the second creature that we talked about 
Leviathan. That's, this is not the only verse in Scripture where he's referred to. You can look into Isaiah, some of the other prophetic books that speak of this same creature, and we see the same features. In fact, he's called a dragon in one of those uh, texts. Um, so again, dinosaur-like creatures, they're probably now extinct. They did walk the earth apparently at the same time. And, and can you guys just see that if they didn't walk the earth at the same time as Job, God's whole point in bringing them up is useless? Because what God is, is communicating to Job is, do you see that creature over there, Job? Yeah, yeah, I see him. Do you see that creature over there, Job? Yeah, I see him. And then he describes them and he makes the point that these creatures are so powerful, no, no human can control them or even kill them or approach them, but God can. And that's, those were uh, really God's two final examples to drive home the point that Job was out of line in thinking that he could be God's equal in that way. So a couple of little uh, footnotes there. And then uh, just maybe a summary statement for you to think about. These are not in your notes. This is just kind of reflection, okay? I didn't think this was necessary to write down. But um, these mighty, intimidating creatures were the handiwork of the Creator and only he was powerful enough to subdue them. That, that's the point of God bringing all this up, okay? They served as the final two examples which illustrated Job's arrogance and the utter foolishness of his contentions with God. Because Job is claiming equality with God. He's claiming to stand in judgment of God. He's claiming to know better than God. And so God takes him to the zoo and shows him with Two, two different creatures that that's the most ridiculous thing a man could ever assume. Okay, And just a footnote on that. Um, God's creation continues to testify, Romans 1, of what? His eternal power and His divine nature. Okay, Let's remind ourselves that creation is supposed to remind us every day that we're not God. We're not God. We're His creature. We're His creation. And you remember as Romans 1 says, rather than turning away from God, making ourselves to be God, that should humble us and cause us to trust Him and love Him and submit to Him. Remember this summary verse, No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? God says, if this is the way it is, then who can stand before me? Who, who would stand in judgment of me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. Okay, so um, just tying up a couple of things there from last time, those amazing creatures that we saw in... Um, Jurassic Park in Sunday School in Grace Bible Church. Let's look now at Job's response. As I mentioned in the start of our time together, this is, uh, this is the culmination of the book. This is what everything has been leading up to thus far. Uh, God has stepped in on the scene in this amazing theophany. You, you guys okay with theophany? Theophany is just a, a, a fancy word that theologians use to describe a, uh, a time when God appears in a visual way to a person, theophany. And uh, this is uh, arguably one of the, 
greatest theophanies in the whole scripture. And so God it appears to Job out of the whirlwind following on the heels of Elihu's presentation. Uh, and he lowers the boom on Job, does he not? And um, before we jump into Job's response, it's very, very important that we remember where Job is. Job, Job is in the ICU ward at the hospital of Uz, right? He's in critical condition. He, he's, uh, literally speaking, he's outside the city, sitting in the, the dump, the ash heap. He's got his sackcloth and ashes on. He's, he's covered with dirt. His skin has been blackened to the point of uh, not being recognized even by his closest family members. He's got sores all over his body that are infected and infested with creatures. Um, his eyes have been swollen shut. He's bleeding all over the place because the only relief that he could bring from his condition was to scrape his itching skin with broken pottery. As far as we know, everybody has abandoned him, his family members, his friends, his brothers and sisters, perhaps even his own wife. We don't hear from her. And not only physically is he suffering a great deal, but we've seen over the course of these chapters that he's come very, very close to giving up even his faith in God. And he's become a bitter, sarcastic, angry hurting, depressed man. And so as, as we parachute in here to, to chapter 42, we have to read what's just happened in light of that condition. Picture a man sitting in a hospital bed with tubes coming out his ears saying these words. And you'll get a little bit of the effect of them. Elihu has come, Elihu has rebuked Job and has called him to repentance for accusing God of injustice. God has stepped in, he has spoken out of the whirlwind and has, we could summarize what he said by saying this, Job, who do you think you are? Job makes one attempt to respond to God that we previously saw. He puts his hand over his mouth and he says, maybe I shouldn't talk anymore, which is a good initial response. But this second response makes up the heart of what Job has to say in response to God's rebuke. Job chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things that are too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you, and, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract 
and I repent in dust and ashes. Um, If you've even remotely been tracking with this book, these verses should bring you great joy. Because um, it, it is. It's like a good film. It's like a good story. You, you see what's been going on. You see the struggle of this man. You want so much. We, we see it, right? We're the reader. We can see what's going on. We can see the downward spiral. We can, we can say, almost shouting at the pages, Job, no, that's, that's not it. You're missing it. And now it comes, it comes to an end and we see him bow in humble submission to his creator. We see his faith restored. We see him turn from his sin to say, who am I? What am I doing? This is crazy. And he repents. There's a happy ending to this story. Let's um we're gonna we're gonna do this in this fashion this morning. We're gonna make a couple of passes through these verses. The first pass I want to point out some theology that Job stumbles upon as a result of God's rebuke to him. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing, as we come for a second pass, is I want to focus particularly on repentance because we learn a lot about repentance from these verses and then the final pass which will be our 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 final approach where we land the airplane and and that will be uh, some observations of what we learn based on job's response okay so that that's where we're going Uh, let's do pass number one let's talk about some theology here it's interesting the first thing that job notices is God's omnipotence. Now that makes sense, right? Because God has spent three chapters saying, Job, do you see what I've done? Do you see what I've made? Do you understand what I can do? And remember now, the the last two examples, he holds up these two creatures and says, can you control these guys? Can you approach them? Can you kill them? Can you subdue them? Do you want to even go anywhere near them? And of course the answer is no, not at all. No one, no one is powerful enough to do that. And so Job's initial response, look at verse 2. I know that you can do all things. He knows that God is all powerful in, in direct response to behemoth and to Leviathan. You can do all things. Job cannot do any of those things things. The second thing that he's going to point out in the end of verse 2 there is his sovereignty. Look at what he says there. He says, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's it's very interesting, and and David, I meant to call you this week and, and we could chat about this, but literally he says, of all God's purposes, they are never impossible. They will never be... It literally is never be impossible. It's just one of those weird Hebraic ways that they say things. But my guess is 
why Job puts it like that is, is it's a double negative. And, and we say, well, double ne- all, all you grammar people out there, you know, double negatives are not proper English, right? And, and, and I don't know if it's proper Hebrew or not, but I think what he's saying is it, it's a way of, of highlighting the fact that God can do whatever he wants to do. It is never impossible for God to accomplish some purpose that he has. It's never impossible. Uh, we think of what Jesus said, or uh, um, actually what the angel said um, to Mary, that nothing will be impossible with God, right? So the two things right out of the gate that he's going he's gonna to talk about, that Job points out in his response, is God is all-powerful, He can do anything he wants to. And he is sovereign. His purposes will never be thwarted. He will do whatever he wants to do. That's Psalm 115, right? Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Now, why is that significant? If you you listen to people that have struggled with how God can allow suffering. Okay, If you listen to people trying to wrestle with those types of questions, you will hear one of two things that people propose as a solution. Why does a good God allow suffering to exist? Solution number one, God wants to, He really is good, but He's not powerful enough to keep evil from happening. You guys remember the book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People? Rabbi Harold Kushner, um, one of the best-selling books uh, that he wrote in response to the loss of one of his sons at a very early age. Kushner, uh, a Jewish rabbi, um, concluded, and it's, I never knew this until I, you know, I, I, it's one of those books that I'd, I've heard about my whole life, but I never actually read until I got into Job earlier this year. I didn't realize it, but Kushner's book is largely based on the book of Job. And he totally misses the point. Um, But Kushner's solution was that God is good, that evil does exist. He's just not really in control of things. Think about that. A God who creates something that he cannot control. That's a pretty scary world, isn't it? But when people wrestle with this question, how can a good God allow suffering in the world, they usually come up with two solutions. Either God is not all-powerful, he tries really hard, but he can't really control everything, or he's not really sovereign, right? He really isn't in control. He really isn't over his creation. And it's interesting to me that the two things that Job immediately points out as part of his repentance is that God is all-powerful and that he certainly is in control of every atom of the universe that he creates. So God is all-powerful. He is in control. Nothing is impossible. Any purpose of his will always be accomplished Now, what's the significance of that second little point there, that God is sovereign? This is something that we have not heard Job speak of thus far. 
I want you to think with me for a minute. In bringing up God's sovereignty, what is Job beginning to see for the very first time? What's that? Okay, his dependence, certainly, because he's not in control, right? He's got to depend on the Creator. Yes, Rich. Maybe there's a purpose to all this. Do you see that? We've never, and, and you check me, okay? As best as I can tell, Job has never once said, maybe there's a good divine purpose behind all of this. And in God revealing himself to Job and, and, and lowering the boom on him, we go, oh man. Job looks up and he said, well, maybe there's something here I haven't thought about. Maybe there's a purpose here that, that doesn't make any sense to me. But it says here, God, God's purposes are always accomplished. No purpose of his is thwarted. Maybe there is a purpose in all this. We can see that, can't we? We've seen what's happened. We've seen the progression of Job from great faith to great contention with God. We see it. We're saying, Job, Job, get off that road. No, don't go down that road. No. He doesn't see it until now. Maybe there's a purpose. And he considers maybe God isn't out of line. Maybe, maybe this isn't unjust. Maybe God is accomplishing his purpose. Um, and this is a good time just to remind ourselves. You understand, Job didn't have a Bible. Let alone, he, he didn't even, you know, a Bible, you know, we think we have, the, you know, most guys have an Old Testament or at least part of an Old Testament. He doesn't have Romans 8, 28. We have that. Job is learning Romans 8, 28 by experience. So he affirms God's omnipotence. He affirms God's sovereignty. Look at verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? What does that remind you of? What is that? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Does that sound familiar? Oh, my. Okay. This should sound familiar. You should, you should be saying, yes, Keith, we just read that not too long ago. Yes, you're right. Look back at chapter 38, verse 2. Chapter 38, verse 2. What does it say? Someone read it. See, I told you it should sound familiar. Who's speaking in that verse? Okay, in, in 38, God is talking, and, and Ruth is right. In, in, in our chapter, chapter 42, Job is now quoting God. Job is responding to the rhetorical question that God asks. Do you see that? So he quotes what God asked him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now listen to his response, okay? The end of verse 3. Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I think this is getting at the heart of what God wants us to see in this book because what happens in suffering? 
we question God's power. We question God's sovereignty. We might question his goodness, his justice, as Job has done. But in in this verse, in verse 3, Job begins to put his finger on an issue, again, that he has not considered thus far. He, he's not, as far as I can tell in the book, he has not thought about this possibility yet. And it's this. Maybe there are some things about God, about His ways, about His purposes that I can't understand. Maybe God doesn't give an explanation because we couldn't handle it if He did. He says, so what did I do? He says, I spoke out of ignorance. I Put it like this. He tried to explain things that were unexplainable. He tried to respond to things that only God understands. He says, I spoke out of my ignorance. Only God is omniscient. Only God is all-wise. Only God is inscrutable. It's interesting how, how the Lord does this. Uh, the psalm that uh, Terry is going to be preaching on this morning has the same word in it as verse 3, that word, wonderful. Amazing. And, and it's not just amazing, wonderful, awe-inspiring. See that little word, to, T-O-O, you see that? The Hebrew is something like things that are amazing, that are wonderful, that go beyond me. And I was driving in this morning, I was thinking, how do you, how do we think about that? Let's say, let's say that this afternoon I went home and um, I sat Eric down, my, my two and a half year old, okay? And uh, I went up, I was in the attic putting Christmas stuff away yesterday, and I came across a box of my old physics textbooks from, from my teaching days. And let's say that I went home this afternoon, and I sat down with, with my two-and-a-half-year-old Eric, and, and um, I tried to explain to him Maxwell's equations that explain all the wonders of thermodynamic radiation. You think he'd like that? What if I sat down with him and tried to explain something simpler? Algebra. Multiplication. What if I sat down to him and tried to explain to him thermodynamic, the thermodynamics or mechanics? All that fun stuff, right? You guys love that, don't you? <laughs> you guys don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Think of how much a two-and-a-half-year-old does not understand that we just take for granted. Okay? We, you know, it's the time of year we're going to start getting information about our taxes. We have to do our taxes. Right? Um, getting sick, medicine, paying bills, um, eating, what, just basics. Think, think of how much stuff we understand that a two-and-a-half-year-old does not understand. Okay. Now, if, if there is a vast chasm of understanding between a two-year-old who will one day understand those things and an adult, how vast must that chasm be 
between even the smartest people in existence today and the God who created them. I mean, just, just, we don't do this very often, but can we just remind ourselves how dumb we really are? We don't get it. We know, we know that, that much in the sea of God's knowledge. And yet when it comes to suffering, we think we know better. We think we know better than God. And this, this is why, this is why if you're tracking with Job, if you've been reading this book, if, if Job has become your friend, and I hope he has throughout this year, last year, you should read that and say, yes. Because he finally, he finally starts to see, maybe this is something I'm just not gonna understand. Maybe this is something that I can't explain. Maybe, maybe this is something I just need to trust God with. And at that moment, what happens? What happens? He turns from himself back to God. Okay? Um, what is faith according to Hebrews? Faith is the of things not. Faith is when you say, okay, God, I trust you, even though I don't see it, even though I can't explain it. And can you imagine how much more difficult that is for Job to do who had no Bible? than it is for us. We've, we've got the complete can. We've got, we've got a sufficient text. Job says, you know what? There's some things that are too wonderful for me to understand. You know, David said that in Psalm 139, right? Thinking about God's omniscience and, and His omnipresence. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the grave, you're there. Even before there's a word on my tongue, you know what I'm going to say, God? And what does he say? That knowledge, trying to wrap my brain around that, is too high for me. I cannot attain to it. It's too wonderful. Could, could it be that the reason we suffer, or the reason we struggle so much in suffering is that our God is too small? That we've we've domesticated him, we've we've made him like us. We we've made him a familiar peer rather than the amazing, omnipresent, omnipotent, almighty God that he is. Yes, ma'am. right that's right that's right and, and that was something that job lacked as well he didn't have that insight yeah yeah we're so privileged aren't we so he affirms his omnipotence he affirms his sovereignty and i'm going to call this an affirmation of god's you ready for this 
unfathomableness. Okay? I told you, I, I run out of gas after two syllables, so. He's unfathomable. I can't even say it. He's beyond our understanding. Theologians say he is beyond understanding. And, and, and you understand, that doesn't mean we can't know something about God. Of course we can know something about God. That's revelation. It just means we can't begin to understand everything there is about God. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. His unsearchable, his understanding is unsearchable, inscrutable, unfathomable. Look at the end of, or look at verse 4. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. The second part of that is again another quote from chapter 38. He's quoting God again. He, and the idea is he's responding to God's questions, okay? He's responding to his own foolish insights. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, my eye sees you. Um, that's one of the most important verses in the whole book. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. On the tales of what we were just, we were just talking about, um, Job doesn't have a Bible. All he has is what we would think of as oral tradition, what was sort of common knowledge about the deity, about God. And it's interesting, you see what it says there, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Do you see that word hearing? It actually means hearsay. Hearsay. What he's saying is, God, before you revealed yourself to me, all I had was hearsay. All I had was the, the common understanding of who you are. And his point is, that was insufficient. That wasn't right. You heard what the friends thought, right? The retributive theology, the vending machine God. He said, what I had was, was hearsay, but now my eyes see you. Now, a couple of things I want you to see from this. The first thing is that I think verse 5 indicates that not only did God speak out of the whirlwind, but he saw something. Job saw something. Like Moses, who saw the back of God in Exodus 34, like Isaiah, who saw a vision of God high and lifted up in the temple, like like Peter, James, and John, who saw a bit of the, the Shekinah, the, 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 glo- the, the glory, the, the radiance, the splendor of Jesus when he was transfigured. There's a few individuals in Scripture that get to see a glimpse of God. And Job saw something. 
But you know what's amazing about that? And I, and I think of Moses in Exodus 34. You guys know the story. Moses gets all excited because God decides he will continue on with the people even though they disobeyed by building the golden calf. You remember the story. God says, I'm not going to go with you. Moses, you go by yourself to the promised land. And, and Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God says, okay, I will go with you. And in the excitement of that, Moses says, great Lord, show me your glory. What did I just say? Because a few verses prior to that, God just told him, no one can see my glory and live. That's like saying, I want to die, Lord. And even more shocking than what Moses says, and I, and, I, and I have no doubt about it, he quickly covers his mouth, is God's response when God says, okay, I'll show you. And you know the story. He hides him in the cleft of the rock, puts his hand over the, the crevice in the rock. God passes before him. He removes his hand last minute. Moses gets a chance to see the afterglow of God's radiance and presence. What's amazing is that... Let me ask you a question. If you saw God, you'd Facebook about it, wouldn't you? <laughs> wouldn't you? And, and it would go something like this. This is what it looked like. And do you know that the vast majority of people who did get a chance to see God in Scripture and they wrote about it, virtually none of them write about what they saw. Moses, Exodus 34. He says nothing about what the glory looked like. It's come, come on, man, tell me something. Doesn't write anything about it. Isaiah talks a little bit about it. The three disciples don't. Ezekiel doesn't. Jeremiah doesn't. Most people don't. And Job doesn't tell us anything about what it looked like. Now, why is that? When the Bible does stuff like that, we're supposed to go, hmm, maybe there's something we need to think about here. Because when he says, I, I heard of you by hearsay, but now I see, sure he saw something. But that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that physical sight, the revelation of God, allowed him to have what? Spiritual sight. Gary, where's Gary? You talked about this last week. The end, the end of that section of Revelation. He who has, what? Ears to hear. We say, talk about people that don't have ears. No, no, no. He's talking about spiritual hearing. Spiritual seeing. The revelation of God in this verse allows Job to begin to see for the first time. He has an understanding. He, he gets it. He understands. He says, I hear, I heard, but now I see. We see it in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, when Moses saw God, what does he say? He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness and truth. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, Genesis 22, after sacrificing or, or about sacrificing his, his son Isaac, Abraham names the place, the place where Yahweh is seen. Why? Because those are moments when God revealed himself to his people and they were those aha moments where people walked away saying, now I get it, now I see better who God is. Now I understand Isaiah got it in Isaiah 6. 
Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I want you to notice something, okay? The sight that he talks about is not that Job finally gets to announce that he's innocent, right? Remember the whole book. I want to go before God, I want to plead my case, and he'll announce me innocent, right? Is that the sight that he gains here? No, it's not that he finally gets his, his day in court with God. That's not it. Is it that he is the sight that he, he finally gets an explanation? Well, Job, let me tell you what's going on. See, before all this started with you and the sickness and the wife and the kids and all that stuff, Satan came to me. Is that what he gets? An explanation? A, a look behind the curtain of heaven? No, he doesn't get that. The sight that Job gains in these verses, the thing that he sees as God reveals himself to the, to, to Job is this, that God alone is God and he does whatever he pleases. And the heart of a man who follows after God says, I will trust in, I will love, I will submit to, and I will follow that God. That's the sight he gains. You see, suffering drives us to seek God so that we can learn to see. Do you see that? I, I appreciate you saying that, Doc, and I, I think whether it's Moses, whether it's the disciples, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Job, um, you know, these things teach us that we don't, we don't really see God as He truly is until stuff like this happens. It is. Um, and one of the things I got from, from studying First Peter years ago is that uh, an untested faith is an unsure faith, right? And um, God is in the business of opening blind eyes, and he does it through suffering. Um, let me ask you a question. Do you want to see? Do you want to see? Um, I don't know about you, but you know, you come away from these verses, sections like this, and you say, "Lord, what, what am I missing? What, what, where am I blind? Where, where do I, where do I misunderstand what's really going on?" And maybe you pray like I do, "Lord, help me to see. Help me to see." And what Job is showing us is that that sight very often comes through trial and suffering. 
as we seek God in the midst of suffering, as we seek God in the midst of unanswered questions, as we seek Him in the midst of things that don't make sense, and somehow there, there's, a, there's a special sort of grace in that moment where God just... Do you want to see? Um, if you want to see, then there probably is going to be some trial and suffering in your life. And that's not a bad thing. You know, suffering is, is, is God's LASIK surgery. He wants to help you to see. Let's pray.